We've been studying this book of the Bible, the book of Romans, and we call it a book. It's really a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians who lived in the city of Rome. So ergo the name Romans to the book. And what we've learned so far is that the Apostle Paul was writing this letter to his Christian friends there to try to heal a, a schism, a rift that had taken place. You see, this church was divided. This church had people who, they had Christians in this church who were from a Gentile background, and there were Christians in this church who were from a Jewish background. And these two groups of people were having a very difficult time getting together, getting along. Uh, they're very different, very different, uh, very different backgrounds, very different family structures, very different habits and routines and so forth. And now they're coming together, and they were rubbing really hard. So the Apostle Paul is bringing them together with this message, the gospel. He's, he believes that the gospel is, is the one thing that could bring these two groups of people together. In fact, it's the one thing that can bring anybody together, any group together. Because in the gospel, we're all the same. As we've said before, the gospel has these three parts to it. We're all equally lost. We're all equally lost, separated from God. And we're all equally loved by God. And we all have an equal opportunity to be made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And in that, we're all the same. And so that's why I, I believe with all my heart that the Church of Jesus Christ is the one organization, the one group of people on the planet who actually we have within us the capacity to cure racism. Because we're, we have amongst us, between us, we have the greatest common denominator, Jesus. Can you think of anyone greater? Me neither. He's the reason, he's what brings us together. And so the church is the one place where it ceases to be about color, it ceases to be about your economic background or your education background, it really doesn't matter. We all come to this, we're all equal here at the foot of the cross of Jesus. And as he, as he says, we're all equally lost, we're all equally loved, and we all have an equal opportunity to be made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's Paul's message in the book of Romans. And so to do that, he starts off the first couple of chapters, and we've experienced, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, it's kind of rough. So the first couple of chapters, in essence, he's got to get us, we've got to be equally lost. That's where it starts, remember? That's not the pretty part of the gospel. That's that raw, ugly, dirty part, uh, the part that we've made. We have made a mess of things. The human race, when I say we, I mean all of us people, we've made the mess of things, and we're equally lost. And it doesn't matter whether you come from a you, you grew up in the gutter or whether you grew up in a nice, clean-cut Christian home. We're all lost. And that's really the thrust of Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. In Romans chapter 1, we looked at, we, we learned that he deals with these really obvious sins. And, and some of them are even grotesque. And then Romans chapter 2, we discover these are more, less obvious, they're they're, they're more subtle sins. These are the sins kind of that, that nice church people would be more guilty of. The sins of being judgmental, critical, self-righteous, kind of. And we learned last week that, you know, in the world, there's this conflict between the church and the world. And the, and the, the church looks at the world and says, you guys are a bunch of dirty, filthy, rotten sinners, and the, and the world looks at the church and says, you guys are a bunch of judgmental hypocrites. And the, and the truth is, we're both right. Because the truth is, we all need Jesus. That's the point. Whether your sin is being judgmental or your sin is one of the things listed in Romans chapter 1, we still are lost and hopeless and we need a Savior. So Paul brings us together on this. We have a common problem. We have a common solution. We have the same problem, we have the same Savior. So that brings us together. 
Now that brings us to Romans chapter 3. Last week we looked at, we looked at Romans chapter 2, and in Romans chapter 2 he was dealing with basically these, you know, the sins of these nice, clean-cut, good church people. And the question that you might have, remember we learned the Apostle Paul, as he's writing this letter, he's kind of imagining um, somebody opposing him. He's imagining the, the kickbacks that he might get as he's speaking this, as this letter's being read. And so, so Romans chapter 3, verse 1, it kind of opens really right up with Paul answering this objection, that, so, that somebody might be going, hey, what, what about this? And, and, may, and here's the question. So... Last week we learned, Romans chapter 2, you, and I use myself as an example. I grew up in church, nice church kid, and uh, I'm, I'm not guilty of many of the things listed in Romans chapter 1, but I was still on my way to hell, and, and the truth is there's a lot of good people, a lot of good church people that will find themselves in hell that are in hell. And, I, and I'm not ignorant of the fact that some of you here this morning are on your way to hell. As, as nice as you are, with your fresh haircut, and as loud as you sing. Because if your faith, if you're trusting at all in your good works, then you have not trusted in the one thing that can save you, which is Jesus. And I want you to know where we're going this morning. At the end of this service, I'm going to ask you to abandon your good works, to leave them by the roadside, and to embrace the salvation that comes only by faith in Jesus Christ. And so, as I'm reading Romans chapter 2, me, nice church kid, I, I'm left with this question. Well, pff, what good is being good? If good isn't good enough. And let me tell you my little story. I grew up in church. My mom and dad took me to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night prayer meeting, Thursday morning, when I, before I was in school, when I was a preschooler, Thursday mornings, my mom took us to the women's missionary prayer fellowship meetings on Thursday mornings. This is my life. Sunday nights, I never got to watch the wide world of Disney. Always got left out of that. Wednesday nights, I loved Little House in the Prairie. Never got to see Little House in the Prairie. I'm telling you, so this might, don't judge me for this, but I had a big time crush on Melissa Gilbert. Just going to say. <laughs> Wednesday nights, I couldn't even watch Little House in the Prairie. And I couldn't even pretend like I was sick because my mom's a nurse, so I can't get away with that stuff. Unless, I mean, I had to be dying in order to have an excuse not to go to church on Sunday night, Wednesday night, or Thursday morning. I kid you not, the first Super Bowl I ever got to watch in my life was the night our son was born. I watched it from the delivery room. The, the doc, because the, the doctor didn't want to miss the Super Bowl. And my son was born on Super Bowl Sunday. He was born that night. And so the, the doctor literally had it on in the birthing room. And he's watching the San Francisco 49ers and the Buffalo Bills. And they're on the, you know, I'm like, breathe. <laughs> what was that? What was that? <laughs> it, was a, it was a fall. It was the, the very first Super Bowl I ever got to watch, my son was being born. Why? Well, because according to my mother, that's from the devil. The devil created the Super Bowl to keep Christians out of church on Sunday night. You don't watch that. And I was always jealous of this guy, Freddie. Freddie was a little different. Freddie was a little special. And Freddie kind of, he'd come up. And like Freddie's ministry on Super Bowl Sunday was to come after church at halftime and tell us all the score. It's like, oh, like, thanks, Freddie, great. The rest of us real Christians are in here worshiping. That's my So you're telling me, I'm reading Romans chapter 2. You're telling me I missed every Super Bowl until I was 27 years old. And I'm no better off than the guy that was in the gutter? You mean I never got to watch Little House in the Prairie. I had to go to prayer meeting every Wednesday night. And I'm no further ahead 
than the complete pagan? And the answer to that question is, right, I'm not. And so my question is, well, then what the heck is being good for? What's the good of good if good isn't good enough? And Paul answers that question. Romans chapter 3, that's what he's addressing. Because remember, Romans chapter 2, he's addressing his nice Jewish friends. Clean cut. Romans chapter 1, we know they're all bad. Romans chapter 2, that, they're not so obvious. And now they're asking the same question. Well, what's, what's the good of being Jewish if I'm no further ahead? Paul answers that question. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? What's the good of being good? What value is there in circumcision? Paul says, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Now, I don't know, when I was nine years old and I was missing out on Little House in the Prairie, being told that, well, this is a good thing because you actually have the Bible and they don't. I don't know that that would have floated with me when I was missing Little House in the Prairie. But now I appreciate that. In the sense that this, friends, the advantage that you have is you have the Word of God. And He's made His heart clear. And the rest of the world is fumbling, bumbling along in the dark trying their best to make it work, and they're making this mistake and making that. They're doing the best with what they think is wise, and they're failing at it big time. And you have the actual wisdom of God at your disposal. That's Paul's answer. What's the good of being good? The good is this. You have the very wisdom of the one who created the universe at your fingertips. Now, that's a blessing. He goes on, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. I love that. Will my unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? No. No. Something I'm learning lately, though, is that God's faithfulness, when I'm faithless, when I'm faithless, God's faithfulness does not appear to me as very good. Because when I'm faithless, God's faithfulness appears to me like a fence. God says, Doug, I'm being faithful. But you see, I'm faithless. I want out of the fence. I want on my own. I'm, I'm rebelling. I want to do my own thing. And God says, oh, no, no, no. I'm faithful. And I'm bumping, trying. God, I wish you would one second be faithless so that you just let me go, God. And God says, no. Nope. I'm faithful to the end. Your faithlessness doesn't nullify God's faithfulness. And then verse 20, verse 5, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness, now see if you can follow the logic of this argument. It's there. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God's unjust and bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, well, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? See his argument? The thinking is this. If me being false magnifies God's truthfulness, if my lie makes God look more truthful, Kind of, I'm doing God a favor, aren't I? So how can God get mad at me for lying if somehow my lie makes him look more truthful? That's the argument. If my being bad makes God look better, well, then maybe I should be more bad. And Paul says to that, 
Why not say, verse 8, as some slanderously claim that we say, well, let us do evil that good may result. So why not just keep doing bad things so that if God turns evil into good, and we love that verse, don't we? All things work together for the good. Love that. God turns it all into good. Well, then what does it really matter what I do? And Paul's answer to that is their condemnation is just. In other words, you're an idiot. That's the Doug Rouse bottom line version. Paul's, Paul's answer is don't be stupid. How, how, if, if you being bad makes God look good, then why not just be more bad? That's like the dumbest thing you could ever think. That's Paul's bottom line. Because obviously there are benefits in being good. You know, now I see it, honestly, I didn't when I was a kid, so I'm, I, I admit it takes some time to see this, but I'm so thankful for my godly parents, and I'm so grateful for the home that they built. It wasn't perfect, of course not, no home is perfect, but I'm so thankful because I didn't have the same baggage. I mean, I had baggage. Hey, religion has baggage. So I had baggage. It's not the same baggage. And, and in my family, our, my family, my mom, dad, and my sisters and I, we're the only Christians in our whole family and all the extended family. And, and we're, we have people, you know, all kinds, of, all kinds of brokenness in our family and our extended family. Can I just say I'm grateful for, for the little bit of uh, carry-on luggage that I have? as opposed to the massive bags that the rest of my family's carrying around with. So does being good have an advantage? Absolutely it does. Does it save you? No, it doesn't. But it has an advantage. That's Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. And then he comes to this question, and he, and, and we, he comes down to, so now, okay, so being good has its advantage, but it doesn't save you. And now Paul gets to the heart of the matter. He begins to get urgent. What's it going to take to convince you that you need a Savior? What's it going to take to convince you to abandon your good works and grab hold of Jesus with everything you've got? What's it going to take? That's verse 9. He says this, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike were all under the power of sin. As it is written, now Paul begins to string together. If your Bible has footnotes in it, it'll, you'll notice that these come from different Psalms and Isaiah. So it's not one passage that Paul's quoting it's a string of passages that he's putting together and quoting from uh, what we would call the Old Testament. The Jews, you know, did not call it the Old Testament. It's to, they call it Tanakh. But uh, Paul's using this. So he says, as it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. You know what's shocking about those verses? They were written... They were written to God's people. We read those verses and we think, oh, yeah, that's the world. You're right. Mouths are open graves, pits, vipers, all of them. No. These words are written to God's people. People like you and me. See, what Paul is doing is, is he's appealing. He's appealing to an authority. He's appealing to the authority of Scripture to show God's people their need for a Savior. It's like, it's like, what else does Paul have? I've got to appeal to a higher authority. Paul can't appeal to himself. He's not, he knows he's not 
the ultimate authority. So he, he quotes the ultimate authority. He quotes scripture, the very scriptures that these people would believe are God's word, and he quotes those scriptures to show them. It's like Paul's, Paul's pulling out the final stop. He's like, come on, you've got to see this. What does it take for me to convince you, my Jewish friends, of your need for God? That's, that's what Paul's doing. And my friend, can I say to you the same thing as your pastor today? What's it going to take for me to convince you of your need for a Savior? I, I can't do it. Not on my authority. I don't have it. And I can quote you the same scriptures from the Old Testament you want the New Testament? I can find you 40, 50 more that say the exact same thing. If I can't convince you, based on God's word, that being good isn't good enough, that you've got to place your faith in Jesus as your Savior, then what hope do you have? Because I, I, I'm, 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 uh, I'm out of ammo. I got, I got nothing left. If, if I if God's word doesn't convince you, the preacher sure is not going to convince you. Does this make sense? God's word, my friend, not Doug Rouse, is saying to you, being good isn't good enough. And you have to let go of your goodness in order to embrace the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And now the result of this, you see, is a stunned silence. And that's verses 19 and 20. He goes on to say, now we know that whatever the law says. Now, when he says the law, the Apostle Paul is referencing the entire, what you, again, what you and I would call the Old Testament. He's referencing the entire thing. You and I would call it the Bible. So... Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. When Paul says that it's apart from the law, he's not suggesting that the law is bad. And in fact, he goes on, we'll see in a couple more weeks when we get there in the book of Romans, he, go, he actually explains that. He's like, I don't want you to think that I'm dissing the Bible. That's not what he's doing. But Paul's intention is to recognize, we need to see that the Bible itself, he says, that it, that it testifies, it, it testifies um, to, where are we at? I law, whatever the law says, says to those who are under the law, every mouth may be silenced, the whole world held accountable to God, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight. Oh, I'm on verse 21. Aren't I? Or did I get... That's bad. We're, are we at verse 19 or? Okay, we're not at 21 yet. Gotcha. Okay, Lord. Yep. Thank you. Even wherever I am, that's where you are. That's good. Verse 20. Right. When he says the law, he's referencing the Bible. He's referencing what you and I would call the Bible. You and I are under that. And he says, so now that every mouth may be silenced. In other words, we can't argue against the Bible. You can argue against Doug Rouse, but we can't argue against the Bible. It's God's word. And if you want to argue with it, well, that's between you and God. That's not really between you and me. That's not an argument that I can go to with you and the if the bible says that my goodness isn't good enough then that's the truth and i need to reckon with that and then verse 20 therefore no one will be declared righteous in god's sight by the works of the law rather through the law we become conscious of our sin see the value of the bible is that i'm now aware of God's wisdom about life. I become conscious. And he says, so, so what's the good of being good? Well, the good is you actually know better. You, you don't need to stumble bumble in the darkness. 
as everyone else does without it. You have the very wisdom of God, and now you're conscious of it. So now you have the responsibility. When you're conscious of it, you're responsible, are you not, to make a choice? And now your choice has to be, am I going to, am I going to believe this and act accordingly, or am I, going to, am I going to dismiss it? And that brings us to verse 21. Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Now we come to the answer. So if being good doesn't make me righteous, what does? The righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This is what I was getting to a minute ago when I completely lost my train of thought. And that's this. The law and the prophets is the entire scripture, and it testifies to something. Itself is not the goal. It's only pointing you to the goal. It's the sign. It's pointing us to the answer. If you're in, traveling in Florida, you see signs for Disney World. You don't stop at the sign and say, hey, I made it. No, the sign points you to Disney World. And the sign itself is not the destination. And the scripture, the scripture is not the destination. And that's not to dismiss the scripture. You understand the scripture is infinitely valuable because it directs you to the destination. And the destination is Jesus. He's the point. The scriptures testify to the answer. In fact, there was one time where Jesus was talking to some guys, and he was almost flabbergasted with them because he said, you guys study the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. He goes, but these are the very scriptures that talk about me. Here I am, and you're not coming to me to find life. He was like flabbergasted by their refusal to see that the scriptures all pointed to him, and they were still stuck in the scriptures. So verse 21, these things, they testify to something. They testify to the answer. The, the scriptures make us conscious of our sin. They make us aware of the fact that I need a Savior. If there's anybody that knows we need a Savior, it ought to be church people. And yet, sometimes it seems like we're the last ones to find out. Why are we always caught by surprise by this? Why is this a surprise? We ought to know. Scripture tells us we need a Savior. Verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. Here's the answer. <sighs> Ready for the breath of fresh air? Here it comes. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. When I was growing up in Sunday school, we memorized Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's a great scripture verse, except it's not the whole verse. I don't know why we stopped there. Why don't we finish the verse? You finish the verse, the truth is, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That's the whole scripture. So the whole message is we're all sinned, we've all sinned, we've all fallen short, and we can all be justified freely by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So look at that. God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Well, why did he let them slide? Because he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. I'll come back to that in a second. But let's explain some of these terms. There's some big words here. And understanding them brings the whole thing together. The first word is the word righteousness. The word righteousness, you could almost literally just say rightness is another way to say it. But technically, the word righteousness, it means judicial approval. It's the judge declaring, you are not guilty. You're not guilty. And I like how somebody said, that, said it once. I don't know who said this, but they said, I'm not innocent, but I'm not guilty. 
I love that. I come before God and I know I'm not innocent, but thank Jesus, I'm not guilty. Because the judge has given his approval. He has declared that you are righteous. Now, understand the difference. Maybe you've heard the term self-righteous. You know a self-righteous person? You know what self-righteous is? A self-righteous person is someone who thinks, I'm good enough. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy, pretty good lady. I got this together. I've got it under control. That's self-righteous. Or I can have the righteousness of Jesus. What would you like to have? A self-righteous person stands before the judge guilty and demands to be declared innocent. Judge, you have no right to declare. I'm a good guy. Look at this and look at this and look at this that I did. Well, that doesn't excuse all of this. So righteousness is when the judge declares you to be right, not guilty. That's great news. The next word is the word faith. The word faith, we don't understand faith because in our culture we confuse faith and hope. I say, I have faith, I'm going to get a Lamborghini. I'm just really having faith, really faith for a Lamborghini. That's hope. That's not faith. Faith means I'm pull, it means literally to be fully persuaded about something, fully persuaded such that now I have, now I, I trust that and I've given my loyalty to that to which I'm fully persuaded. So it's like this. I say to you, I have a headache and I really believe Tylenol works great for headaches. If you got a headache, take a Tylenol. Two Tylenol. Goes away. So then I, let's say I have a headache and you say, well, Doug, take some Tylenol. Uh, nah, I'd rather not take any Tylenol. You say, well, do you believe that it works? Yeah, I believe that it works. Yeah, well, then why don't you take it? Uh, I don't know. I don't, I'm not. I think I'll just sleep it off. Do I really have faith in Tylenol then? I don't, do I? I have faith in Jesus. Oh, I have faith in Jesus. Really? How often do we trust in all these other things before we trust in Jesus? And the word faith is a cool word because the Greek word for faith is the word pistis. And in, in the first century, it was used in business. And it literally was used as a warranty. So if, I, if, I, if you sold me, let's say you sell me this keyboard, and this keyboard comes with a pistis. It comes with a warranty. And the warranty says that, you know, for 10 years, it's maintenance-free. 10 years would be great. And then in nine years, let's say nine years, and the keyboard breaks down. Now, what do I do with that? Oh, I can bring it back to you, can I? Because it's under warranty. It's under pistis. And I bring it back fully persuaded. The same, it has the same nuance. I'm full, I bring it back to the manufacturer because the manufacturer's promised I can get it. I'm fully persuaded this is where I bring my broken keyboard. You get it? How's your life? Is it broken? You tired of brokenness in your life? Do you know it's under warranty? Your life is under warranty. Jesus is the warranty. You can bring your broken life to the God of the universe and you say, I would like a new life, please, because this one's broken. And because of Jesus, God says, absolutely. In Christ, I give you a new life. You've got a warranty. And you know that that warranty, is it'll expire just like the keyboard, I said it has a 10-year warranty. It expires after 10 years. So in 15 years, can I take it back? No, it's done. The warranty's expired. 
your life also has an expiration date on it. As long as you're this side of the grave, you can cash in the warranty. But the very moment that you breathe your last breath and you pass into eternity, the warranty has expired. The Bible says that it's appointed unto man once to die, after that to face judgment. Judgment comes immediately. You're, that's it. So the time to turn in the warranty, the time to call for the warranty is now, this side of the grave. Now is when you cash it in, friends. You don't wait. Is your life broken? It's under warranty. Faith. Sin is the next word that's in that thing. You Oh, sin, I know sin. Oh, I don't know if you know sin. Sin is, the Greek word for sin is hamartia, and it means to miss the mark. And, uh, and it means, li literally, it's an archer. And here's the target, and, and the arrow goes, and the arrow misses the mark, goes wild. That's a sin. And you notice here what we're told in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So based on that verse, everybody tell me, what was the target? What's the target according to Romans 3.23? The glory of God. Yeah, that's not a trick question. That's a pretty cool target. Wouldn't you admit? God says, I created you for glory. I destined you for glory. I made you with great things in mind. Glory is your future. Glory is your home. That's where you're going. That's the target. And the entire human race went twang. We sinned and fell short of the glory. Our, our arrows didn't even make it to the target, didn't even come close to the target. Isn't that awesome? That's what sin is. That's why being good isn't good enough. Because look it, Mike's a pretty strong guy, but if Mike and I went out to the parking lot here and we said, hey, let's throw rocks and see who can land one in the Long Island Sound. Now, Mike's probably going to throw it further than me. My rock will barely make it to the edge of the parking lot. <laughs> throw like a girl. No. And that makes girls feel bad. Sorry. Mike's rock, Mike's rock's going to sail. But you know what? Neither one of our rocks is going to come anywhere close to the Long Island Sound, is it? Not anywhere close. That's what good works do. You know what? You might be a better person than I am. You probably are. But neither one of us is going to come close to that mark. Neither one of us. We have all sinned, he says, and fallen short of that mark. Sin. Justified. Now it's getting good. Because justified is a banking term, and it means a zero balance. It's another word picture. You and I, the human race, are in debt with God. Oh, we're in debt. We owe him big. We owe him big. It's impossible for us to pay this debt off. It's just, like that, just like that goal is impossible for us to hit and we fell short of it, paying the debt off is impossible for us to pay off. We're not going to make it. We're not gonna, my, my, few, my, my measly allowance isn't going to come close to paying it back. And so you know what God does? He says, I'll justify you, and that means I'll zero out your balance. Now that's wonderful news. Because God writes off your debt. I love that old song, old, old song. I owed, I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. I needed someone to wash my sins away. You know that song? And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. All day long, Christ Jesus came and paid the debt that, the debt that I could never pay. Boy, it's been a long time since I sang that song. He justified it. He justified you. And then the, and then the next, the last one is grace. Grace. It means to lean forward with favor. Literally is what it means. It's the king. You've got the, the king. And you walk into the throne room. And the king is sitting on his throne with the scepter. And, and you walk into the throne room, you, you just the pauper, me the pauper. We walk in, and the king leans forward, and he goes, hey, hey. His face shines on you. And when he does that, you know he's welcoming you. You know it. 
You don't walk into the throne room and the king goes, get out of here. No, no, no. You walk in and the king has grace. He leans forward to you and he says, hi, welcome. He welcomes you in. That's grace. He leans forward with favor. And then he says this, verses 25 and 26. I told you I would explain this because they're kind of weird. Verse, let me read them again. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, in other words, his patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He left them unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You know, some people wrongly say it. I don't, I don't agree with this thinking, uh, but a lot of people think, think, think of it like this. They think, they think the Old Testament, that God's mad in the Old Testament. You've probably heard that said before because God's always judging people in the Old Testament and he's frying people in the Old Testament. And, and the truth is that that's not the truth. Yes, he did bring judgment, but there were an awful lot of people that God had grace and compassion on in the Old Testament. It's wrong to say he was mad in the Old Testament and now he's happy in the New Testament. That's just complete oversimplification and it just doesn't work at all. But with all the people that God judged in the Old Testament, there were plenty of people he didn't judge. So what he says in verse 25 there, this is what Paul's observation is. He left those sins committed beforehand unpunished. So, so yeah, God did judge sins, though there were certainly people that were judged. But there were a lot of people that God didn't judge. There were a lot of people in the Old Testament that got off, if you will, and Paul says that the reason why God did that, and this is really important for us to understand, the reason why God did that is because he wanted to demonstrate his patience and he wanted to bring every sin under the one answer, Jesus. Jesus is the one that just, when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus paid for every sin. And so, Jesus, so God left some sins in the Old Testament unpunished in order to group them, if you will, group them with all of ours so that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for all of them. And that's why an axe murderer or some really bad person that you think of can have a deathbed conversion just before they go to the electric chair or something and they ask God to forgive them and they breathe their last and they wake up in glory in the presence of God. And I know that bothers some of you. To you, that doesn't sound fair. But I hope that you understand why now. It doesn't sound fair because you actually think you're better than they are. That's why that doesn't sound fair to you. And I'm not trying to be mean, but that's the bottom, that's the truth. If, if you actually think that they don't deserve that, then you've missed the last three weeks. Please go back and listen to them again. Read Romans 1, 2, and 3. You understand? We're all sinners. We're all bozos on this bus. Every one of us. You get that. The reason why that axe murderer can ask for forgiveness and breathe their last and make up in glory is because Jesus paid for their sin. He paid for that. He paid for your little white lie. He paid for your lustful thought. He paid for that cuss word that rolled off your lips so easy. He paid for that little thing that you cheated on. He paid for that test you cheated on. Jesus paid for all of it. There was only one death on the cross. It was only once. 
It's not like Jesus paid a really gruesome death for bad sins and then a less gruesome death for the not-so-bad sins. He paid a gruesome death for every sin. And in Jesus Christ, every one of us can be made right with God. And I have a choice. Do I want to be self-righteous or do I want God's righteousness in my life? Because as Paul has demonstrated, I cannot make myself righteous. I need something bigger than myself. Jesus is the answer to my sin problem. And that's the bottom line. Now, the good news is that Jesus is the answer. The bad news is some of us are still hanging on to our good works. And I don't know what to do about that. I don't know how to help you. Because if you can't accept what God's word says, you're certainly not going to accept what I say. There's this cool word in here that he uses in verse 24. He speaks about being redeemed in Christ Jesus. And if you want to come up, Jonathan and Chris and all you guys can come, Joe. But there's this cool word, and it's the word redemption. And I think this word kind of wraps up the whole deal. Just, it really does. Redemption means that you extract the value out of something. That's, I, I redeem it for its value. And you don't really notice the value of it until it's redeemed. The, the, the thing that gets redeemed is usually far less valuable than, you know, it's usually, you don't notice it. Let me I'll illustrate it this way. So a couple of years ago, our, our brother Harless, he gave me his old pickup truck. And so this is kind of your fault, Harless. But, and and I, love, I love that old pickup truck. I just, I love it. My daughter the other day, she says, Dad, are you ever going to get a new truck? Like, Why? I have everything I need right here. It's great. I love my beat-up truck. I've always said if I had the money, I would just get this one fixed up. My daughter thinks it's ugly, but I think it's beautiful. But I got hooked because a couple of years ago, we had some junk, and I didn't know what to do with it, and somebody said, I'll just take it to the scrapyard. I was like, cool, I got a truck. I can do that now. So I throw it in the truck, and I go to Ostrinsky's over here, and I back up. I like that. Can you pull, turn him up? And I back up, and I hand him my garbage. And Bill does this. Stuck out his hand. He shook my hand. He said, thank you for your business. And he gave me money. I was like, wait a second. I almost felt guilty. So wait a second. I gave you my garbage. Right. <laughs> You're so bad. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I hope he gives me more than 10 bucks for it. <laughs> I would never leave my truck. But so he gives me, yeah, you ruined my whole thing. No, you didn't. So he, so he gives me this money. I was hooked. Hooked. Because... I give him my garbage, and he gives me money. And now, I bet you every week, I mean, I took, I got nine bucks this week. Every week, I take something into the uh, scrapyard, driving down the road, hey, that's an air conditioner. That's worth four bucks. Chuck that in the back of the truck. Hey, that's aluminum. That's worth five bucks. Check that in the back of the truck. That's scrap, bed frames. I'm, my eyes are always scoping for, for scrap metal on the side of the road. It's amazing. <laughs> I, love, I was with my daughter the other night. I just embarrassed. She's like, Dad, you're not going to stop. Yeah, I'm going to stop. Why would I not stop? That's right there. Oh, Dad, don't do that. She slinks down in the car, you know. Like, like Nobody sees you. It's dark. It's okay. I'm going to get this. So it's great. You know what? I see other people drive by, drive by, and you might drive by and not even notice it. You don't even see it because it's just garbage. You know what I see? Money. That's what I see. That all has a value to it now. 
at the end of people's driveways. You know what's happened? That garbage has been redeemed in my mind. I now see the value of it. So you know what God did with you? He redeemed you. Do you know the value? You know how valuable you are? You're worth Jesus. That's the price on your life and mine. That's the value. Without Jesus, you're scrap. In Jesus, you're worth Jesus. When God redeems you, when God, he, he, he makes you righteous, when he says you're right, he justifies you. He does these cool words we just talked about. When God does those things, he redeems you, he makes you as valuable as Jesus. And that's why, that's why being good isn't good enough. Because listen, the best that I can come up with, think about it. Think about the very, very, very best that you could come up with. Do you think it will ever, ever be the same value as the second person of the Trinity? That's why your good works don't work. Will they, They'll never compare. But... God himself can say, I'll redeem you. I make you. You're worth Jesus to me. And he puts that value on your life and mine. So friends, the challenge this morning is this. I hope that you've heard this. We have to let go of our good works. We have to. They're not worth anything. They're, they're not. They're a pile of dust. And we have to embrace. Oh, he's sweet. I love it. He's on the altar. I think that's sweet. I was like, that's awesome. My friend, I want us to all be on this altar in a minute or so. <laughs> we have to let go of our good works and embrace the righteousness that Jesus has for us. That's the bottom. So that's God's word, and I invite you here this morning. I want to invite some of you to actually get saved, to actually ask Jesus to be your Savior. And you say, I, I prayed a prayer. Yeah, but somewhere along the way, you started trusting more in your good works than you did in Jesus. you got to let those go. This morning, I'm calling you to this, to abandon your good works and receive Jesus. That's what I'm asking you to do this morning. And I know what you're thinking right now, and I'm going to call it out. You're thinking, if I go forward, what will everybody think? Because they already think I'm saved. I mean, they already think I'm saved. If I go forward, then they're going to think I'm not saved. That's, all, that's from the devil. That's why I'm calling it out. It's a lie from the pit. Don't listen to it. Like I said, we're all jerks that need Jesus. Come on. Nobody's judging you here. Nobody. <clears throat> we want you. I want you to, I guess, come to the simplicity <laughs> that is found in Jesus is my Savior, not my good works. And I, I love this young man here. And I would use him as an illustration. May we have the same freedom. May we have the same freedom. Okay? So let's stand. And, uh, and they're going to lead us. I mean, or you can stay kneeling. That's okay. 